Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast in the year 2020. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Happy New Year from Sakib Ali and myself and all of us on the team at TennisAccent.com. We hope that uh, the new year and the new decade bring you and yours peace, prosperity, and every blessing. And we are blessed on our first show of 2020 uh, to have uh, Julie Zhao. And she uh, has a personal connection to me because I used to write for her at the blog site, All I Need is a Picket Fence. Uh, and the site's still up. And once in a great while, it's not regular the way it used to be at the start of the 2010s. Uh, but uh, there's still an occasional post. But I used to write for Julie and also uh, PJ and LJ. The three of them uh, co-managed the Picket Fence blog uh, when it was a full-service tennis blog. Uh, that's how I cut my teeth in, in tennis writing. That, that was kind of my entry point. Got a lot of good practice that I've uh, tried to continue to apply today at uh, Tennis with an Accent. So you can find Julie at on Twitter at Dootsies, D-O-O-T-S-I-E-Z. Uh, so you might see her referred to as Dootsies. From time to time, sometimes Mistress Dutes, uh, and uh, she's she's written about tennis at Sports Illustrated and other outlets. I was actually trying to find an article she wrote circa 2013 in Sports Illustrated. I couldn't find it on the Google machine. That might be a product of all the restructuring that's gone on at Sports Illustrated, part of the casualties in the journalism industry. But let me just say, Julie gets around, she knows her tennis, and she is a resident of Melbourne. So on this first episode of 2020, we are giving you here at Tennis with an Accent, uh, a site which works in partnership with Australia's Stats Insider, we are giving you a tour guide for the Australian Open. So if this is your first rodeo in Melbourne and you need some tips on how to handle the scene and the heat and uh, the ticketing and the other ins and outs of the Australian Open, Julie Zhao is a, is a great person to consult. And we're very pleased to have her to start 2020 on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Welcome, Julie. Hello, Matt. Hi, Sakib. It's a real treat to have you. And so, you know, I know that you wrote down some notes and we're basically going to unpack those notes for this tour guide for the Australian Open. So let's start with the venue. Uh, and and uh, it, so it's Melbourne Park is located in the central business district of Melbourne. Explain some of the details in terms of going to and from the, that central business district and the actual tennis facility. And what are the things people need to keep in mind when they do that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, in Melbourne, so what we call the Central Dis uh, Business District, which is the CBD, is essentially our downtown Melbourne. Um, and the way that Melbourne differs, I think, from some of the other slams is that most of the other slams, whether you're, you're in New York for the US Open or at Wimbledon, the, the actual venue isn't in sort of the, the central part of the city, whereas Melbourne, because it's a planned city, we've sort of built all our sporting facilities centrally. Um, so if you actually came to Melbourne and stayed anywhere centrally in Melbourne, you should be able to actually just walk to Melbourne Park. Um, and so in recent years, they've set up 
what they call an AO festival along the river. So if you are walking along the river to Melbourne Park, um, you'll go past food stands, you'll go past you know, giant screens with people watching. And so it's a really lovely atmosphere to actually be able to sort of walk to your venue and real um, and a real privilege um, to live in a city where you can do that um, rather than having to catch a cab when everyone else in the stadium is leaving as well. Um, I suppose the other thing to note that there is a, also a tram that goes to the tennis um, and you'll see giant tennis balls at the tram stops where you're supposed to catch those. Uh, and uh, and if you have a ticket to the Australian Open, whether it's a grounds pass or, you know, a, um, a stadium ticket, you should be able to catch that tram from the CBD to Melbourne Park um, for free. So it, that's an, also another plus in terms of your commute to the tennis. Um, so that's kind of ge- the general, um, I guess, gist of how you get to the venue from the city. Okay, let's go through a specific scenario to kind of uh, along these lines to kind of to, you know break open some more details for people who might get caught in some specific tricky situations. So at the 2019 Australian Open, uh, there was the match between Garbina Muguruza and Joe Conta. It started after 12:30 in the morning. For some reason, they started it you know after midnight. The match ended near 3 a.m. If you stay for a late night special, what are what services are and aren't available? Um, what are some emergency tips if you get caught in that particular kind of situation? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things. Um, the uh, public transport, the trains in Melbourne run for one hour after play finishes on the main court. Um, so... Now, I'm not sure when that service stops. So usually if it stops at around midnight, you should be able to catch the next train somewhere um, because the Melbourne Park is also near a train station as well. Um, On Friday and Saturday nights, the trains and trams here run 24-7, so you should still be able to catch something. Um, But otherwise, you know, you've got your Uber and um, cabs and Melbourne Park being quite centrally located, it should not cost you too much to be able to get to where you're staying if you are staying centrally within Melbourne. So what if you're not staying in in the particularly centrally located areas of Melbourne? And also what about uh, taxi service, you know, not coming through Uber or Lyft or one of those private companies? Yeah, so there's a taxi rank, and, and generally speaking, the taxis are pretty good at, in terms of hovering around the stadium if they know it's going to be a, a late night. Um, there, there's a taxi rank, and there's also like a special pickup area for your um, for your sort of Uber rideshare services. If you're not staying centrally within Melbourne, your best bet is to either catch it from the stadium if it is one of those 3 a.m. Um, matches. Um, or you can try and catch a train or a tram to somewhere central within Melbourne and getting a, a, um, a cab from there, but you're not likely to. There's not going to be a huge difference in price because Melbourne Park is already pretty centrally located in Melbourne. Um, yeah, so it, it's sort of, I think if you were to, to want to stay back for one of those midnight classics, 
uh, in Melbourne. That's a calculation that you have to make in terms of how you're going to get home afterwards because we we do have almost every year something that runs way past midnight and not always till 3 a.m. But um, especially now that Leighton Hewitt's retired, but um, it, it does happen and you have to you have to make that calculation in your head as to whether it's worth it to stay. Okay, and one more nuance of transportation late at night. Uh, any difference between Monday through Friday and Saturday, Sunday? Um, yeah, I, I think public transport here runs 24-7 on Friday and Saturdays. That, that's my um, understanding. Uh, but the, the frequency obviously gets less and less uh, the later you get. Um, and but on the flip side, you're much more likely to be able to get a cab or a ride share quickly during the week than on the weekend because the the middle weekend, particularly in Melbourne, is extremely busy. Um, and so your your chances of getting getting a cab or a ride share if you're going on the weekend is going to be slimmer, or it might just take you a lot longer. So, so Sunday would be a great time to have a rental car or have like a personal travel arrangement. Yeah, yeah. But parking parking around Melbourne Park isn't actually the best. So um, certainly if someone's coming and they want a rental car or something, it's, um, uh, it's probably not the easiest to find parking nearby. Okay. So, you know, that's that's the main thing in terms of the late night transit. Let's now focus on the tennis and the courts and the ticketing. Um, so you, you wrote to me in, in, in your notes that, there, you know, the, that Labor and Margaret Court are the two main uh, ticketed courts, but that Melbourne Arena, which is formerly Hisense, that's a show court accessible on a grounds pass. So... I, I guess the uh, one question arises is that you know what what uh, what are the different parameters in terms of freedom of movement between or among various courts, and what are what are some situations that either you personally experienced or some of your friends once experienced where you thought you assumed that you had certain freedoms of movement, but you realized that you did not, and you were locked out of a match or a court you wanted to be what are, what are some of the uh uh nuances that people need to pay attention to with the ticketing and what they can and can't access with certain kinds of passes yeah so um i guess the main thing is that if you have a show court ticket so rod laver arena or margaret court arena um you'll be able to access those specific arenas plus you know anything that's available on a grounds pass um so that probably gets you into, you know, the, the most number of courts you can get to if you're visiting. Um, Rod Laver, the way that Melbourne Park is set up, you've got Hisense Arena on the one end, and then on the other end, you've got Rod Laver and Margaret Court, which have, um, I guess, adjoining concourse areas. So you can actually go from Rod Laver Arena to Margaret Court Arena without actually leaving the stadium, without going outside, uh, which is really handy when it's really hot down here. Um, and then in, in between Melbourne Arena and Rod Laver, there is sort of your Grand Slam Oval area where people go, you know, and do shops and, um, and buy food and all that sort of stuff. Um, now, in terms of um, uh, your ticketing situation, um, 
if Rod Laver or Margaret Court Arena is not sold out, so you get in on a grounds pass and you look at the, the schedule of play and you think, oh, that actually looks pretty good, or it's too hot and you just want to be inside a stadium where there is at least a little bit of cooling, um, you can actually just upgrade your grounds pass if it's not sold out. So you get in on your grounds pass for, I don't know how, how much it is these days, it's about $50, I think. And you look at the Rod Laver Arena lineup and you think, actually, I want to go into Rod Laver Arena. You only need to pay the difference between the Rod Laver Arena ticket and your grounds pass to upgrade. So you do have a little bit of flexibility if it's not sold out to be able to upgrade once you get in. Um, but um, the... If you're going on a on a on the middle weekend, or um, I think Australia Day is normally during the Australian Open, so that's our national holiday, and everyone has the day off. So it, middle weekend or Australia Day, the the grounds are likely to be quite busy, and you've got your show courts that are mostly going to be sold out. Uh, so um, if you are going on on a day that's anticipated to be quite busy, then I would recommend that you just get the show court ticket that you want. Um, but otherwise, you do have a little bit of flexibility on the grounds pass to be able to upgrade. Um, okay, so so this year's yeah. tournament is January 19th through February 2, so that puts Australia Day on what uh, what date? Um, so it's the 26th, which is. Uh, the Sunday. So if it's on a Sunday, I think we'll have the Monday off as a public holiday. So that middle weekend, pretty much from Friday to the to the Monday, is going to be quite busy. Okay. And so if in terms of ever getting a situation in which you can upgrade, what's the what's the normal time of the tournament, or perhaps there are multiple times when there's there's the best and most reasonable chance of an upgrade and is it dependent on the order of play like let's say that you know Federer and uh, Nadal are both on one side of the draw and you get an upset on the other side of the draw and the order of play isn't as good is 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 it is it order of play based or is it time of the tournament based uh, or, or or maybe a little bit of both um, it's more to do with how sold out a particular session is because you can really, really upgrade if there is a seat in the in Rod Laver or um, at Margaret Court Arena. Now, if um, generally speaking, when Federer or Nadal and, and to some extent Djokovic as well, if they're playing, um, then as soon as the order of play comes out, typically the, the tickets sell out pretty fast. So you're unlikely to be able to get an upgrade into the show court um, on the day. But if you um, have a day where, you know, Rod Laver Arena doesn't have as many of the the big draw cards, or and, but you as a tennis fan know that it's quite a good lineup, your, your chances of being able to upgrade on the day are pretty, pretty high, um, I would say. And all you do is once you get into the grounds on your grounds pass, you just go to a ticket office. There's a couple... Um, around Rod Laver um, Arena, you just go and say, "I want to be able to upgrade. What can you do for me?" And they're then they'll they're generally pretty good at helping you out with that sort of stuff. Okay, and that 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 kind of enables me to branch into one kind of more general thing, uh, and that is just you know when you're walking around the grounds and you're a newcomer to Melbourne Park, what are like the three or four 
places on the grounds that are kind of, uh, you know, mileposts, like, you know, re reliable places to go to either to ask for help, get tickets, find your bearings. You know, maybe if you and a friend get lost, like what's a place where you can connect to, you know, say like, you know, if anything happens, you can meet me here. I'm sure there are a, a handful of places uh, that are kind of, uh, n you know, connecting nerve centers around the grounds. So sure. what, what, what are some of those handy places for, for first time tourists? Yeah. So the, um, if you're coming from the, the city into Rod Laver Arena and you're coming through the tram entrance, so you're getting off the tram into the grounds, um, you'll see right in front of Rod Laver Arena, there is a, a, a ticket office plus a gift shop. Uh, and that kind of joins where Rod Laver meets Margaret Court Arena. Uh, and there are um, sort of steps and rest areas just outside Rod Laver there. And you'll also be able to see Garden Square with the giant screen from that position. So generally speaking, if people want to meet up on the grounds or they need some help, um, you know, you, you end up at that ticketing office or, or somewhere around that rest area uh, and, and that's a very easy spot for people to meet up or to find some some help or to just enjoy a bit of shade on a really sunny day. Okay, and um, it, what what about um, in terms of like if you if you suffer? I mean, we're getting into the the heat a little bit um, yeah. with this one. So if you suffer from the effects of heat, you know, what, what, are the, what, what are the emergency services or facilities or kiosks uh, relative to like the main places, you know, Labor Arena, uh, uh, you know, Melbourne Arena, the, the other show courts and also the other outer courts? What, what, uh, when, when people plan their day uh, and they want to know where they need to go in case anything, you know, bad happens. We obviously don't want that to happen. But in case anything does, what's an early sense of how centrally located everything is and where people can get care if they happen to need it? Sure. So each of the the main stadiums, I think, have their own first aid um, facilities. Uh, and if you are feeling quite ill, just um, uh, I would certainly recommend just finding um, one of the officials. They all sort of wear their accreditation around their neck. So you'll find someone um, who works for the tournament uh, and get the attention of the medics on site as soon as possible. Australian Open, um, this is something I think that is that is quite particular to the Australian Open is that our heat waves are, are no joke. They are um, incredibly intense. Um, the sun here is brutal and everything that you hear about, you know, players suffering um, in the heat is very, very relevant almost every single year in, in Melbourne. Um, so when you are coming to this tournament, just be really, really careful and take care of yourself and bring lots of water. Um, there's lots of places that provide or sell sunscreen uh, around the stadium and just make sure that you you are well covered um, in that regard. Um, it, it is quite a brutal tournament, both for the players and the spectators. And if you are suffering from the heat or you know it's going to be a really hot day, I do recommend actually just getting a ticket to Rod Laver or Margaret Court or even trying to get into Melbourne Arena um, just so you can stay out of the sun a little bit because the outside courts on a really hot day is very, very brutal. 
All right. So that leads me to, you know, the best seats in the house for various courts. Uh, and oh. I, I mean, you know, people, people can, you know, ha- having watched this tournament on television for a long time, I mean, they know the general layout of the various courts, but they might not know some of the more specific details, um, you know, in terms of sight lines or how, how, um, you know, the, the sun and the shadow move across the courts. So, you know, have you, what, what's been your experience of a good seat in terms of giving you a blend of experiences or perhaps just your favorite experience, you know, behind the baseline, looking across the court, um, you know, maybe there's a seat that, you know, when you, when you start the day session, you're in sun, but like after two hours, you're in shade. So you get a little bit of suntan when the weather's nice, but then you get the cooling relief. So like juggling all of these considerations, what are, what are the more favorite tickets? And you could also say, what are your, what have been your least favorite tickets? Uh, you know, getting seats in various, uh, courts around the grounds at Melbourne Park over the years? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess uh, my, well, most of my experience tend to be with uh, Rod Laver Arena being a Federer fan. So um, I guess with Rod Laver Arena, most people, and I think this applies generally to to tennis tournaments, I I like to sit behind the baseline um, just because you, you don't have the neck action, you, you can, you know, have a good view of the court without having to, you know, move around and follow the ball too much. Um, now, with Melbourne, um, with Rod Laver Arena, uh, one end of the baseline is the, um, I guess, the president's box. So those seats are generally not up for sale. Um, but the way it's structured is that you coming to the stadium, there's a there's a series of seats when you go down, and then there's um there's a num- there's a set of stairs which then go up. So there's two levels to the stadium, uh, which is a lot smaller than say the U.S. Open. Um, so if you can get baseline, but on the upper level, it's actually not a bad view at all. And in most years, I tend to actually get, and this is a bit strange because. Uh, um, they, these seats seem a little bit um, um, not um, not preferable, but they, there's obstructed viewing seats around the stadium, which are essentially the first uh, row when you go into the upper level. And the way and the reason why they're they're considered to be obstructed viewing is that they've got a metal bar in front of them, and so if you watch uh, as a match on Rod Laver Arena on TV, for example, you see a lot of people hanging flags off those metal bars. Um, so I like to actually sit there because you're close enough to the action. You're basically in the first row of the upper level of Rod Laver Arena. Um, and the so-called obstructed view isn't actually really an obstructed view because it's a metal bar. And for most adults, they their sightline will go above that bar. It's really if, you're, if you've got a child with you that they might not be able to see. Um, so I tend to actually get a lot of the obstructed viewing seats if I've got the opportunity to, because I figured that's um, close enough to the court, but it actually my view actually isn't really obstructed in any way. Okay. Uh, how are corner seats uh, in either Labor or the other various, uh, uh, you know, the, the two other big uh, stadiums there? Sure. Um, a little bit further. Uh, the, the advantage with the corner seats is that I think they're mostly in the shade um, because the sun, at least on Labor, moves from um, 
one sideline to another during the day. So one side of the court uh, will be in the sun in the morning and the other side of the court will be in the sun at night or towards sort of 7 or 8 p.m. in the evening. So if you're... Um, so if you are getting a sideline seat, just make sure that you check which side you're on. I think the eastern side gets the sun in the afternoon because um, it kind of come, cuts across um, the stadium. Um, so uh, this, the corner seats, while they're a bit further just because, you know, you've got a rectangular core, so you've got a strange sort of corner view, um, they are actually mostly in the shade, which is not really a bad thing Um given how hot it can get in the stadium. Um, the worst corner seats are probably in um, Melbourne Arena because it's um, Melbourne Arena is actually normally a velodrome, so they, they do cycling tournaments there. So it's sort of strangely structured and the corner seats feels particularly far from the stadium, uh, from the court itself. So, um, But at the same time, Melbourne Arena is on available on the grounds pass, so... You're, you're also not paying for those seats, so that might make up for some, um, some um, dissatisfaction with your position. All right, and let's do seating in terms of the time of day. And you've, kind of, you, you've talked about this to a degree, but uh, like in terms of heat exposure or other things that people might be worried about, when, when, you know, first off, when, does the, when is the height of the heat? And, 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 sec, and kind of as a follow-up on that, uh, do the do, does the intense heat stretch longer? Uh, I mean, what what are what like what are some of the more am, the like the ambush like experiences that you've had to suffer through? You know, some of your less comfortable days that can be teaching tools for for tennis tourists. Like if you you know, like maybe you didn't think that a intense heat would be part of the first match on, but it was. And you got a seat that you thought was, uh, you know, was, you know, was in sunshine, but the heat wouldn't be intense, and maybe you got a little extra burned, or, uh, you know, what, like when you go to like a specific session, maybe like at night, uh, you were getting a seat like in the upper bowl on the that little sliver where there's still some sun. You didn't really think that would be an issue. Any stories that could be like a cautionary note for fans and things like you don't want to get caught doing this any kinds of stories uh, along those lines it's actually not really it's actually gotten a lot better in recent years because they've started closing the roof which brings the heat right down and i know there was a, a little bit of controversy a couple of years ago when um when federer played chilich in that um final that was a um, it was a 46 degree Celsius day. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's extremely hot. And yeah. the uh, and I I remember going to that match thinking I don't know how you know my love for Federer might finally find its limits because I, I don't know how I could sit through um, that kind of heat. But they closed the roof and they put on the air conditioning. At least from the stands, you could feel. I think it's a little bit um, warmer if you're actually a player on court, but. On the stands, you could feel the air conditioning kick in, and it was it was just bearable. Um, so that that's the, if you are getting one of those days where you are the, the the temperature is getting close to forty degrees Celsius, I I would highly recommend just trying to get a stadium seat um, ticket, um, or if you're um, or getting there early enough to get a seat in in Melbourne Arena because um, the the stadiums tend to be a lot cooler because of the roof. Um, and, and 
the Australian Open is getting much better at managing that because it used to be a, a war of attrition in terms of who, which player can survive the heat and, and the fans who can survive the heat. But these days they're, they're a little bit more conscious of, of the effect that has on players in terms of their burnout for the rest of the tournament and also on the fans who, who you know, if you're sitting on one of the outside courts with no shade on a really hot day, it's, it's going to be quite brutal. Uh, one other thing about the, the enclosed roof when it's used, uh, does it get uncomfortably humid in there? Uh, ha- have, you, have you experienced the closed conditions in a variety of circumstances? Uh, what, what, no, what can you not say? humidity. Because um, the thing about the heat here is that it's a, it's a dry heat. So um, I remember going to the US Open a few years ago and it's quite humid in there, which was what surprised me. Um, but here it's a, it's a very dry heat. It feels a little bit like you're standing in an oven. <laughs> That's sort of the, the feeling that you get. Here. So it's it's not going to be that humid. It gets a bit stuffy because you're you're in a stadium that's enclosed with 15, 20,000 people. It, it does get a bit stuffy, but it's not a humid um, condition. Okay. Now, switching gears a little bit. This is about watching tennis, but it's not about really a ticketed uh, concern. This is more about w- w- the, the outer courts. Is there any vantage point on the grounds? Uh, where you can look out uh, and get like a panoramic view of of multiple courts at the same time, or is that not possible? Uh, It is possible. I think it's court three. Um, uh, So if you come out of Rod Laver Arena, uh, and I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's court three, is sort of on an elevated platform there's stairs going up and if you if you're waiting outside court three you you'll be able to see some of the outside courts from a high vantage point um but otherwise most of the ground the most of the um the major um i guess courts for the for the grounds passes are with the exception of melbourne arena generally not too full unless you've got a particular player playing um and so you should be able to get into the outside courts fairly easily. If you if you did want a panoramic view, I, I'm pretty sure it's court three that gives you a little bit of a um, higher vantage point to look over Melbourne Park. And if you were to occupy that vantage point, is that a, a sun-exposed or sun-protected area? Uh, it'll be in the sun. Okay, so there's no shade-protected area where you can get a, a larger view. No, no, and most people, if they are looking for a bit of shade, um, that sort of rest area just outside um, Rod Laver Arena with that I talked about before, that, that's where they go um, because you get the big screens um, from Garden Square to, to watch um, while you rest a little bit in the shade. Okay. Uh, let's move to uh, observ- observing the players at, at practice. So what are what are kind of some of your insider tips or, or things that you've learned also from PJ and LJ or other friends over the years. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, the Australian Open continually develops its product and develops its facilities. I mean, it keeps making substantial improvements year by year. What What is your best, most updated sense of, you know, some of the tricks of the trade in terms of 
being able to see the top players at practice and and kind of to know the ins and outs of how, uh, figuring out you know when they're most likely to be there and how how you can you know have the most uh, pleasant experience possible. Sure. Um, in terms of practice courts, um, I can only speak from previous years' experience because the grounds have um, they've actually built up a new wing to the grounds over the past year. So I'm not sure if the practice court set, um, situation is going to be the same. But in previous years, the practice courts are sort of on. Um, uh, one end of Melbourne Park near uh, near Melbourne Arena. So if you come out of Melbourne Arena, uh, the practice courts will be sort of to your right under this footbridge. Uh, and so um, back in the good old days, they didn't publish the practice court schedules, which means that you, you just turned up and and tried your luck then. Um, but now they do publish the, pub, uh, the practice court schedules, which means that um, the stands where someone like Federal or Nadal or Serena uh, is about to practice, the stands get very full around the practice courts. Uh, and there's actually now security, um, a lot of security and ushering near the practice courts because there's just been um, a, a lot of sort of crowd congestion mm-hmm. in that area in previous years. Um, and so if you are, say Federer is practicing third on the practice court, on in a particular day if you want to be able to see him you need to actually be there as soon as the grounds open um, because then you otherwise your prospects of getting in are fairly low uh which uh, i mean it depends on what you go to the tennis for I, I personally prefer to still go to the matches and and perhaps leave the practice sessions to the to the um kids who want to see federer but may not have a a show court ticket um but you know, if you if that is your thing, then then certainly go at the start of the day um, um, for the big players. For for someone who's maybe like top twenty, top ten, um, but not one of the the really um, um, you know one, not one of the big three or, or Serena or Sharapova, you, you should be able to get into a practice session fairly easily. Okay, and and so um, are there any patterns? I mean, you know. I- the best players playing on the best show courts, specifically labor. I mean, that's an obvious pattern of scheduling. But are there m- more layered patterns, you know, below the top five that, you know, a casual observer of this tournament on television might not get? You know, in terms of studying how orders of play are put together over the years in Melbourne uh, at this tournament, are there some particular uh, trends that you've noticed that a, a tennis tourist needs to be aware of and perhaps can take advantage of in certain ways. Like if you want to see a certain kind of player outside of the top five or six, uh, you know, what would be the, your, your, the, the various ways to kind of break that down either by nationality in terms of men's tennis and women's tennis, uh, anything uh, in terms of the orders of play that you've studied over the years that you can relate to our listeners? Um, I think you might be a, a, a better person to answer that question than me, Matt. You seem to actually um, have a pretty good um, pulse on, uh, you know, uh, the kind of order of play that's likely to, to be scheduled. Uh, I guess from my observations, generally speaking, in the first week, someone like Kyrgios might get a, a show court ticket, uh, a show court um, session, uh, 
they, they, if he's playing anyone in the top 10 or anyone who uh, might have name recognition in Australia, then, um, then he's likely to be on Rod Laver on a night session. Um, uh, there are certain um, nationalities that are particularly popular in Australia. Uh, for example, the Greek players, someone like Tsitsipas, will um, generally get a pretty good um, draw, in, a pretty good spot in terms of um, where they're allocated because um, there's a very big Greek population in Melbourne, so um, people like to see uh, players from their own country. Um, uh, what else? I, I think that's really um, – and generally they try to put one of the big three on Margaret Court Arena in the first week because if they're not there, then then they lose all ability to kind of um, show one of the top players to the Margaret Court crowd um, in throughout the tournament. So that generally one one person out of Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic will get a Margaret Court session in that first week. Um, tends not to be Federer, but they've tried in the past. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's kind of really it. A lot of it depends on. Um, which side of the draw and and sort of name recognition. I should say the other player with, with a bit of name recognition these days is Vavrinka, who's um, since be, um, since beating Djokovic a couple of years ago, is becoming quite popular here as well and has, um, has um, quite a few fans down under. So I think that's sort of the main popular players down here, um, sort of the locals plus... Um, uh, plus guys like the big three and Bavarin Car and CC Pass. Okay. Uh, in your notes for me, you mentioned Grand Slam, Oval, and Garden Square as uh, places to gather away from the tennis. So any, any specific things you can highlight about those two places uh, in, in terms of uh, the fuller Australian Open experience? And, and you know, obviously – if you've watched tennis for seven or eight hours straight, you know, you're, you're tennised out, so you need a break. So yeah. I, I, I'm assuming that Grand Slam Oval and Garden Square are the places to, you know, when you want to just get away from tennis for half an hour, you know, those are the places to go. Yeah, Grand Slam Oval is a um, um, is sort of uh, the, the area in between Rod Laver Arena and Melbourne Arena. And that's where you go for um, for food, for beer gardens, for um, uh, a bit of shopping if you're wanting to get souvenirs. Um, and a lot of sponsors will have sort of their stands there and, and freebies and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's more of your, um, I guess, having fun and, and doing something other than watching tennis area garden square is more of an area where you just sit on one of the the lounge chairs and you and you watch tennis on the big screen with everyone else so typically people will start to gather in garden square if there's a match that's capturing everyone's attention on one of the show courts so a lot of the people with the grounds pass will go to uh, garden square to watch the match so it tends to have a crowd that actually watches the tennis whereas Grand Slam Oval is where you go to kind of just do something other than watching tennis. Um, yeah, so in the last couple of years, they've also started a third area, which is um, the AO Live Stage. So um, uh, I don't know if this is done at other tournaments, but I, the Australian Open puts on concerts between the day and night session. 
Um, and if you're if you've got a ticket, you'll be able to get into that. And so some people, um, to, uh, particularly towards sort of the end of the day, um, there'll be people leaving the the grounds um, on their grounds pass to go and watch a bit of live music near that stage. Um, and there'll there'll be sort of food and, and beers near there as well because that's how we roll. And um, so that those are sort of the main areas if you don't want to, I guess, sit and watch tennis all day long. Okay, in terms of the concerts between the day and night sessions, is that a fixed time or is it just like 15 minutes after the last ball of the day session is hit? Um, I'm pretty sure it's a fixed time. Um, so I can't remember if it's a five or six o'clock, but it's, it's before the night session starts. Um, and so it kind of gives people an, an opportunity to go um, uh, well, it gives the day crowd an, an opportunity to go and see the uh, see a bit of music before they go home, and it gives the night crowd, when they're coming in, uh, a bit of time to get some food, listen to some music before they actually go to the night session. So I think it's either at five or six o'clock at night, and it's it's on every day, and there'll be a lineup um, posted uh, on the AO website about that as well. Okay, let's move to food and drink. Uh, you know, I'm, there's a lot of standard fare, but I, I, I'm interested in wondering if the, you know, the food and drink offerings have uh, like a hidden gem or, and also is there, you know, I imagine you wouldn't want to drink something too heavy earlier in the day, but it might hit the spot later in the day. What are some of your tips for, uh, you know, finding some uh, like above average food and, and maybe creative food? And also, you know, how to uh, uh, drink certain things at certain times of the day to get the most out of that part of the whole deal. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that Australians have a have a schedule for for you know being too early to drink. I think we're we're pretty um, we're pretty alcoholic nation, unfortunately. Um, in terms of food, I think actually the, the best way to do it, and I think this is fairly standard across most tournaments, is to buy your food outside and bring it in because once you're inside, then you pay a premium for everything. And the food has been a little bit better in recent years. It used to be sort of your, your standard hot dogs, fish and chips, that sort of stuff. But uh, in recent years, they've tried to be a little bit healthier um, with the food options. I'm not sure what the food trucks will be this year but most of the better options are on Grand Slam Oval. Uh, there is a restaurant on site. Um, I have never been. I don't know that anyone really goes unless it's part of their corporate package um, but th that does exist I'm told. Um, alcohol wise there's beer sponsors, there's wine sponsors which is the main um, I guess the, the big um, wine producer here in Australia called Jacobs Creek. It's going to be fairly standard fare, um, but my main tip is to buy your food outside and try to bring it in. All right. So on the heels of that, Julie, um, what is what is the either your favorite? Let's do it. Actually, let's do this two ways. Two two different answers. What is the closest place outside the grounds where you usually get you know decent food to then carry into the stadium? What is the and then the second one? What is the best place, uh, you know, that's not too far away from the grounds where you might get food, you know, and you're and you're you're not on a time crunch, you and you want to really get premium food and then carry it in. 
So what are the like the like the the convenience option and then the the uh, you know best cuisine option for carrying from outside the grounds into the grounds? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure that there's going to be that much of a difference because, um, like I said, Melbourne Park is quite centrally located. So if you um, if you're walking or catching a tram from CBD to Melbourne Park. Um, then you you will be able to pass any number of um, cafes or sushi shops or whatnot on your way to the stadium. So that tends to be what I do: try to get, um, you know, a, a sandwich or a, um, a, some sushi on my way in, and then um, and then you sort of avoid having to to buy once once you're on the grounds, or you know, leave your seat in the middle of play uh, to try and get some food. Um, because once so, you get in, the lines are pretty long as well. Okay, but so are all the places that you know the various places you might consider fairly equal in quality, or are there one or two places that might stand out for tourists that they might want to keep in mind or write down on a on a piece of paper as they plan their itinerary? Um, fairly equal in terms of quality, I would say, um, because um, Melbourne has mostly uh, I guess a cafe culture um, and the the kind of food I would typically bring to the tennis would be a you know at most a sandwich or some something that can be eaten cold you do you don't really want sort of hot takeaway um, to bring to the tennis uh, so that I reckon it's probably about the same um, anywhere in in sort of the city area Okay. Uh, anything? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you just want? You know, some gaps that you want to fill in in terms of uh, uh, the larger uh, tourist experience. Things that you, you know, accumulated knowledge that you've gained that you want to pass along to our listeners. Um, I mean, you know, we've we've hit a lot of the big points, but there's if there's anything that we failed to uh, to mention yet that you want to make sure to kind of re- pound home as a reminder just as like a point of emphasis that when you come down to Australia and you're new to the scene, you know, this is what you have to make sure of. Um, I guess one thing to mention is um, if anyone is coming to, uh, to the tennis with uh, a DSLR camera or just, just the, the security at these tournaments tend to get tighter and tighter every year. Um, there are restrictions on the kind of camera lenses you can bring to the tournament um, and they will check at the door that your your camera, I think, is two hundred millimeters um, zoom. Uh, that you you know you you don't have um, um, such a large zoom camera that you're likely to hit someone on the head, or um, you know, or also you're you're sort of um, essentially taking photos that really the the professional licensed um, accredited photographers are taking. So your camera will get checked at the door. And the other thing is. Um, any glass drink bottles um, you won't be able to bring to the tournament. So just to make sure when when you do leave, um, check that you don't have anything that um, that won't actually get you into the the grounds of the tournament because there is um, you know quite strict security, understandably, at these tournaments. She is Julie Zhao. You can find her on Twitter at Dootsies, D O O T S I E Z. She is the hostess with the mostest, and and she still runs. All I need is a picket fence. She doesn't post regularly, but she that the blog is still open. And whenever something really really special happens in the tennis world, 
she might post about it, but uh, she's she's a resident of Melbourne, and I could not have asked for a better tour guide for the 2020 Australian Open. I want to wish all of our listeners at Tennis with an Accent a very blessed and happy new year. Julie Zhao, thank you for joining us on the first Tennis with an Accent podcast of the new year. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast and uh, our first uh, Sakib and Matt segment of 2020. And we're talking about the ATP Cup and one of the new cups. And, and we're, we're diving into this cup and we're going to see uh, how everything uh, goes. So, Sakib Ali, happy new year to you. Uh, let's just take take it very simply. What are your expectations or initial thoughts about the ATP Cup now that it's here? Hey, Matt, and hello, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year uh, to everyone who is listening. Uh, Matt, I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, The way the season ended, we crowned Spain as uh, the new Davis Cup format of the PK Cup champions, and now uh, five weekends removed, we are in the new package deal of the ATP, and anyone who follows tennis closely is not surprised that this is the clash of the two bodies uh, that govern tennis, and ATP, you know, uh, has their own cup, which used to be a team cup back in uh, the late 80s to early 90s in Dusseldorf, Germany. Did not have points. Now this is it's repackaged the new thing with a lot of points, a lot of money involved, and uh, it has a uh, star power uh, with few big names that have not made it. We can discuss them uh, as you give your take. Uh, to be honest, I think when Ship, Skip Schwartzman was in Madrid covering, uh, watching the event and also you know covering it side by side for tennis with an axe, and he made some good insights. So I'm going to use those as baseline, and uh, still uh, you know not going to give much uh, in terms of you know what I'm seeing because I've only seen a set of Sitsipas and Shapovalov. But uh, Matt, I'll just flag this that this is uh, something interesting. Uh, they're using three different venues over three different cities, and Perth is in a different time zone. So definitely, uh, if they wanted to create a World Cup type of environment in one country, so this is it. It's more accessible and probably being played at tennis centers that that can accommodate, uh, that have accommodated tennis in ATP-level tournaments in the past. So that's a plus, and I'm sure they have like a small checklist of what not to do uh, or what they could improve on compared to what the PK Cup uh, went through in the initial installment. And uh, they played a wrong national anthem, which I was just, you know, browsing through Twitter, which is, you know, totally inexcusable for a sport that's as international as tennis. But, you know, ATP was quick to acknowledge the mistake. So uh, that, that that's not a dagger, you know, or the nail in the coffin in by any means. But and let's see how this plays out. I mean, there's... Uh, this new technology, I think it is uh, inspired by, I think, Labor Cup. There's a scenario where uh, you can see the bench. It's not maybe as lively. And I should not even say, I only say Labor Cup because the teammates in Davis Cup are in the stands here. The teammates are, are removed from the stand. And um, let, let me bring you in there. Have you seen any of this yet, Matt? Because I'm really uh, not in a position uh to give too much, you know, what's what I've seen. But uh, if you want to weigh in, and then maybe I can feed off that. But right now, it's the first day of the competition. Uh, I, I don't have much ex- much to expect. Let's put it this way. That's the most honest uh, take I can give right now. There's too much to absorb. 
Well, we're, for our listeners on the Tennis with an Accent podcast, we're recording this just as uh, Sitsipas and Shapovalov uh, are, are, are playing, and, and Shapo's giving Sitsipas another really good battle. You remember that uh, Shapo beat Sitsipas in Miami last year in a very close match. So, you know, it's just pretty much one match on the board. And, you know, for me, I have no expectations, and I'm, that's not a knock on the ATP Cup. It's just, no, it's just the absence of expectations, meaning that I'm not going to impose any uh, preordained beliefs on the event. And it was the same with Labor Cup. You know, I went into it with a blank slate, and my whatever I said on uh, tennis Twitter, you know, my main point of emphasis was let's let the event sell itself. We will see how the players embrace it. We will see how the players react to it. We will see, you know, how robust and vigorous the competition is, and then we can evaluate. And I think that's just the fairest, most sensible way to view any new event. The players make it what it is. And that, so that's my simple view of that. I think in terms of how uh, the ATP Cup relates to the Australian Open and the, the tennis season in general, but especially the Australian Open, the main point for me is, the, the point of intrigue is that you know the Labor Cup was a unique competitive space. And I talk about this a lot. I write about this a lot at TennisAccent.com, uh, that there are unique competitive spaces. The Olympics are a unique competitive space. I mean, Monica Puig played tennis at a level which far exceeded anything else she's ever done. And it's because she was playing for her country. And it was there was a special passion, a special motivation that she didn't have anywhere else and any at any other time. And it brought out the best in her. That is a unique competitive space. Uh, there are other examples of that. And, you know, the, so the Labor Cup, that, that is a unique competitive space. And it totally changed Alexander Zverev's season. And it also really helped Stefano Tsitsipas' season. So with the ATP Cup, it's a new thing. It's foreign territory. It's not business as usual. Will a player go through this tournament and move into uh, Melbourne uh, with a new competitive mindset and surprise us. So that that's really the uh, the main point of intrigue with the ATP Cup, this new competitive space, uh, how it's going to lead into uh, the rest of the year. So Sakib, other big uh, item of, of news is Andy Murray not being able to play in the Australian Open. And it's kind of an, an inversion here that he played the Australian Open last year and then didn't play uh, for, for several months. Now, this time, he's not going to play the Australian Open, but then, of course, if his uh, rehab and his journey uh, continues the way he hopes it will, then he's going to play later on in the season. So it's going to be an inversion of his 2019 calendar. What is your foremost reaction to Murray not playing in Australia? Yes. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, you know, disappointed, to say, to say the least. This uh, did not come from... You know, I didn't expect this to happen, to be honest, after I've seen the documentary, you know, during my holidays. And it is a pretty inspirational piece. If any tennis fan still hasn't seen it, I mean, it goes without saying, check it out. It's on Amazon Prime and what this man went through. And uh, Matt, I think you and I have talked about in the concluding thoughts of the season that he, he would remain someone uh, for an intrigue follow uh, as his progress. He won a title. Uh, in the fall and then uh, you said I think on the podcast that you know by the time French Open comes we can expect him to provide some results and I said uh, it's on record that you know he could be uh, not a factor like to go deep but he definitely would be 
someone in the Australian swing where, uh, you know, it'll be very, uh, it'll be, it would have been fun to see which half or which quarter of the draw he would have been in. But now, since that's not going to be the case, uh, you know, he's someone who's gone through a very tough time, you know, with his hip resurfacing and the procedures he's gone through. So we only wish him the best. Yeah, it's not the ideal start, but I think Team Murray probably knows this best. Even though it's kind of anticlimactic, his return to Australia was expected in so many ways, given the fashion, he how he departed uh, last year with a cloud of uncertainty. Will he ever play again? Will he even be ready or fit for Wimbledon? So uh, mixed emotions, even, you know, we are trying to cover him on a podcast, but as, you know, people who are close to tennis, who I mean, I'm still a tennis fan, I mean, keeping company with journalists like you. So Andy Murray was, it still remains to be one of the big stories uh and uh, hopefully this is just a minor roadblock of what he has endured in the last two and a half years. And uh, he probably does come back later on the tour uh, with, you know, full momentum and full health. So uh, it's, it's delayed, definitely. He was, uh, uh, it was expected, you know, for, that this podcast would be a platform for you and I and even Mert and Andrew to come and talk about Murray. But I guess we all have to wait. Uh, so he's definitely one of the big names that's missing in this tournament. Uh, that's the ATP Cup and the Australian season. Uh, any, any other player, Matt, who you think uh, could benefit uh, with the, you know, with the season in Australia? Uh, any any names that you have on your shortlist? I know this is a very short-lived off-season. Looks like the conversation just, you know, didn't even get a chance to breathe. But we are back here. Anyone you are keen on on either side of the draw, ATP, WTA? Uh, who could shake things up? I know we talked about the ATP Cup, but is there anyone you want to talk to the audience about? Well, you know, I'd like to see how the, this next uh, week and a half of uh, of match play goes. If you know, if someone emerges, makes a particularly big impression, you know, it's worth note, noting that uh, Bianca Andrescu you know, got going early in January, uh, and now now it didn't translate to the Australian Open, but it certainly translated to the rest of her season. So it'll just, you know, these first few weeks before the Australian Open are loaded with intrigue because after after the offseason and that reset, you know, does someone come out of the blocks quickly? We had examples of those kinds of players emerging. Uh, You know, Roberto Bautista Agu, he had a good start uh, to to, to the very beginning of 2019 and he definitely did carry that into uh, into Melbourne uh, and made what was at the time his first major quarterfinal. And of course, he then made a second major quarterfinal and made a first major semifinal at Wimbledon. So, you know, it'll just be interesting to see what happens in these first uh, this first week and a half of results, you know, before we go to Melbourne. And just to uh, address Murray very briefly, um, I, I think the main thing for Murray, I never thought he would be a top tier factor in 2020 in the hardcore port, the early hardcore portion of the year. So through Miami, uh, I thought, you know, that that was the time for him to build back his base of fitness and his game. Uh, you know, so the real setback here is that, he, you know, he can't get, you know, a, a decent points pickup in Australia. So that, that's going to hold him down in the rankings and, and in the seedings. Um, you know, so that could r- limit his progress. I always thought uh, by always, you know, since he, since he, it was clear that he was going to come back to the tour. I always thought that, uh, being at his best 
by Wimbledon of 2020 was the most reasonable goal for him in terms of being able to chase a major title, being able to be a factor at a hugely significant tournament. So the, the, the concern is, is this going to prevent that from being his, his reasonable goal? Uh, I think that you know if he can still be in the mix by the time we get to Wimbledon, I think it's he's his 2020 is still fundamentally on schedule. Uh, but if he can't do that, you know, then then most of the year in terms of the majors is gone. So you know, if he builds up his fitness and on hard courts, uh, is able to you know make a moderate run at one of the clay tournaments, not necessarily Roland Garros, but you know maybe make like a a Rome quarterfinal, something like that, and then be ready for Wimbledon. You know, that to me is a reasonable basket of expectations for Andrew Murray. Do we know a precautionary time of return? Has it been announced? Like, what is he targeting as far as return to tour? I I have not seen anything. But, you know, it, it might be out there, but I haven't seen anything. Okay. All right, Matt. So, once again, I think we had, you know, this is the second act of the podcast, as you already said. So, by the time listeners have got to it, they have enjoyed the first segment. So, yeah, I just uh, wanted to wish Happy New Year to you and all the listeners and the team. And let's get the show on the road. And uh, hopefully there's plenty of good tennis to talk to in the coming weeks. And hopefully f- very few injuries. Yeah, I'm into that. All right, so the Sakib and Matt, uh, the first episode is in the books by the time you, you have listened to this. Uh, thanks for the support that everyone has shown over the years. The podcast is still hosted and produced by Red Circle. And uh, if you haven't followed or subscribed, it's available on various platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Red Circle website. Matt, am I missing anything as far as the platforms go? Uh, you're not. Um, uh, just, you know, we, t- we on our Twitter accounts, myself at mzemic and also at the Accent underscore Tennis Twitter account, we tweet out our five main outlets. Uh, I just want to say at the outset, this first uh, podcast of 2020, we're going to be here through 2020 providing the tennis coverage you've come to expect at Tennis with an Accent and our website, TennisAccent.com. We will be here through the year. That's an ironclad guarantee. I will only say, if you want to see us in 2021 and beyond, it, t- it takes resources. We Sakib and I have been you know, doing this for a year and a half now, and we can't do it for free. You know, there, ha- there has to be something to pay the bills, but we are going to be here through 2020 no matter what. That's an absolute guarantee. But in, in order for us to be here on a much longer basis, uh, we need your support. And so um, TennisAccent.com, go to our Twitter page, Accent underscore Tennis. There are links where you can help. So we look forward to your support, and we definitely promise the best coverage, the coverage you come to expect from us in 2020.